Uh, I'm Annika. You may have seen me up here um, a lot, but talking to one of these still makes me nervous. So luckily, these are God's words and not mine. Um, I will read them for you. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Morning. Oh, thank you, Annika. Um, please make a priority to come to the, the family meal and, and what we're doing of sharing kind of where, what, how the last year has been and where we're heading for next year as well as have a wonderful meal, a chance to connect with each other. Um, my name is James. Thank you for those watching online. If you're here for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here. It is a joy to have you with us. We are in the middle of a series on Ephesians called Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Midst of a, of a Post-Christian World. And I just want to open up with a, a word of prayer as we get started. And Jesus, we just thank you that we get to come to study your word and to encounter you and what you're doing, Lord. But I, I just recognize, Father, even as we come to enter your word, people are coming from all different places this morning. I mean, maybe some of the people are coming here angry with a, an argument on the way, or kids were in rebellion, or maybe a problem in a marriage, or, or maybe there's financial struggles, or an illness, or, or maybe it's just, I don't know, like loneliness or something from being single, or, or just feeling in solitude. And whatever those things are, whatever we're bringing with us this morning, Jesus, I just pray as we engage with you, Father, may you meet us today. Holy Spirit, may, may you come and may we experience your presence. Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace, and may you bring your peace to us today as we look at your word and enter into what it looks like for us to be zealous for unity, Jesus. Amen. All right. The passage this morning we're looking at, you might have noticed there is a word repeated more than once, in fact, seven times in that passage. That was the word one. Almost like Paul's trying to emphasize something. Almost like he's trying to again and again and again speak of this whole idea of unity. And so today, the title of the message today is Paul's Calling for Us to Walk with Zeal for Unity. And I was recently listening to uh, the Holy Post podcast, and they, had, they, they, they quoted this study on there of a recent study that was done of the political polarization in America, and I thought it was fascinating. And in this study, they looked at the question, how much do each of the following phrases or words apply to the opposing party? And they break it into four categories of Republicans and Democrats, yes. But even that, they break down to Republicans and then like extreme Republicans or devoted conservatives. And then Democrats and then really devoted Democrats. And I just want to run through this. To me, it's just fascinating what they show here. So uh, we throw that up. So in this, a lot of information, but it's, it's showing in each of these categories. So for example, here where it says brainwashed. How many Republicans feel that all Democrats are brainwashed? Well, 75% are regular, 89% of devoted conservatives feel Republic Democrats are brainwashed. But then look at the blue color. That's the same question of Democrats. Literally identical amount of Democrats feel the Republicans are brainwashed. Next subject, hateful. That's how many Republicans and then devoted Republicans think Democrats are hateful. Almost identical for Democrats feeling the same thing about Republicans, whether you're regular or whether you're super devoted. Racist, I mean, there's a slight difference there, but not much. Arrogant, it's almost identical the way they think about each other, right? Okay, now that's the negative. Go to the positive traits of things they say positive things, right? 
Just beautiful. So positive qualities. How many Democrats think Republicans are reasonable? 12%. How many devoted Democrats? Zero think the Republicans are reasonable. But then flip the script. The same thing Republicans or Democrats. Honest, identical in there. Caring, basically the same. Humble, 0% of Republicans that are devoted think Democrats are humble. Like, but it's basically all the same. And so when you look at this, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's maddening seeing that, and you can kind of laugh at it. But to me, I find it really eye-opening, but also just sad. And it just emphasizes the polarization in our nation, right? That it doesn't really matter what you believe, you know that you are right and they are wrong. Regardless of what category you are in, or regardless who the we are or the they are, we are right, they are wrong, we are smart, they are stupid, we are humble, they are arrogant, right? No matter what the category is or who you're asking, we are correct, they are wrong. Everyone is just convinced that their view is correct. You can pick the issue. It really doesn't matter the issue. Look at Seahawks' defensive strategies from yesterday, and you'll get people up in arms of describing how do you actually stop a wide-open wide receiver, right? Um, look at end times eschatology or theology. You'll get people all over that on that one. Look at the efficacy of COVID vaccines or masks, and people are all over the map. Look at whether or not we should put pineapple on pizza or, or whether or not Harry Potter is okay in the same category as Lord of the Rings or whether Harry Potter is evil and Lord of the Rings is holy, blameless, and pure. Um, look at, at baptism. Look at the Illuminati. Look at abortion. Look at QAnon. Look at spiritual gifts. Look at the seven literal days of creation or, or pick any subject. And we will be all over the map of the us's and the them's and the we's and the theirs, and we will just divide. Look like at Christmas time. Ask about what did Mary really know, and can we actually sing that song? Boom, polarization completely on this issue. Pick anything, and we'll just find a way to be polarized. And it's not just politics, it's anything. It's within Christian denominations and among them, and not just between like Baptists and Episcopalians or Lutherans and Methodists. But within the Baptists, did you know that there are 64 official different Baptist denominations? 64 different denominations within those hundreds and thousands of other churches that split up that can't work together. And that's within one single denomination. Because the church, we're really not best, better, much better than the rest of the world. If you look at that, that, those stats that I put up there, I mean, pick any theology and you could find the same polarization in most Christian ideas as well. You know, one of my favorite theologians, Scott McKnight, I often quote him. He, he does this study of his new seminary courses that come into his class of the students. And he gives them a, a, a quiz of 24 questions where they're supposed to describe Jesus in these 24 questions. And it's kind of multiple choice. And then he slightly alters the questions and gives another test right after where he asks 24 questions describing themselves. And now, maybe you're not surprised, as you look amongst all these tests, they are radically different from each other, meaning that every one of the students has a radical different view of Jesus and how they describe Jesus. They are all over the map of differences of how they view who Jesus is. But when you compare the two tests together, the individual, 90 plus percent of the time, they're identical, as far as 90 percent plus of the answers. So we have radically different views, but we are convinced that we are right and Jesus is just like us. Right? That describes most people. I may be completely different from others, but I'm convinced that I'm right. And again, the church, we are, we are no better than the rest of the world in this. In fact, we may be worse. I love it. The, the old Archbishop of, of Canterbury, of the Anglican Church, William Temple, he was, in quoting uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, there's this great line in the Apostles' Creed, 
um, which is one of the greatest creeds of our faith, of all Orthodox Christianity, which says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And by that Catholic, it just means what Paul says here in Ephesians, of, of one church, one body, one Christ, right? That it means the universal church. And he said this when quoting, he says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and sincerely regret that it does not at present exist. Right? There, there is no place in which we have this unified body of Christ of this holy Catholic universal church the way that God intended it to be. Obviously, as a wider body of Christ, we, we have failed in the area of unity. Right? To, to hold up to what, what Christ has said and what Paul says. and It seems we've just kind of given up and moved on and just think, ah, now we just pay it lip service. We recognize, well, that must just all be hyperbole, despite the fact that it is endlessly written in Scripture, endlessly spoken of by Jesus and all the apostles. It seems we've kind of just written those parts out of the past and just said, ah, that's for eternity, maybe. But as we're going to see again today, Paul does not put this off to eternity. He puts this, in fact, as one of the chief concerns of Jesus for now. And what's amazing about this, though, as we're going to see again today, is that Paul dealt with far more passionate disagreements at that time than probably anything we experience today. I know we like to believe that we have it worse or better off than anyone, but at that point, it was far worse than what we're experiencing here in America. But for Paul, the unity of the body of Christ was was not something he would just give up on or say, well, I guess maybe for eternity. No, it was central to the gospel message for Paul and for Jesus. And as you look around at Christianity today, I don't see this teaching of Paul being central to the gospel message in, in most Christians' lives. It seems like a good idea, and we'll, we'll talk about it, but the moment we disagree with something, or someone posts something we disagree with on Facebook, or someone shares how they sin differently than us, all of a sudden, all of that goes out the window, and we go right back to division. As Christians, we so often are fighting over the wrong things. The thing that we're supposed to fight for is for unity in the body. And for Paul and the other apostles, again, it's not secondary, it's central to the gospel message. And so we have to get back to the Christianity that actually reflects Jesus in his teaching, to to what actually reflects what the apostles taught, not one that just reflects our own worldviews and our own opinions of, of how we choose to understand things. And so I want to look at this passage again today, and today, this is really part two of last week, and so if you missed last week, please take the time, go back and listen to it again, because this really builds upon that. Um, because that's the context for this. So last week we looked at verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians in chapter 4, and it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So last week we looked at how we are called to live worthy of the calling to which we are called. Right, that emphasis that Paul uses there, and that, that, that calling is that we must walk in humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. And here Paul continues that exact message. It's not a new message. It's completely, it's the same thought. I kind of broke it in half because it begins really as though the first word, eager, is actually describing the previous part. It begins here in verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, and just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and is in all. So Paul is just doubling down on the necessity of unity in the body of Christ. And I want to zero in for a little bit on verse 3. Be eager to maintain... It's actually not even be eager. It's saying eagerly. It's it's connected to the previous part about patience and gentleness. So eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now remember the context of this because it's central to this idea. He's talking about living worthy of the calling to which we are called. And humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. And, and now he says you must be eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the word for eager here is actually quite strong. 
It's another way of saying, another way to translate is be zealous to maintain. To be actively committed. Other translations say make every effort. Do everything you possibly can to maintain this. This should be a focus. This must be a passion of the body of Christ is what Paul is saying. And what should they be so focused on? Maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, so much of this letter of Ephesians is speaking of unity between Jews and Gentiles. And for those that may have missed some weeks, or if you're recently coming into the series, I just want to recap just briefly, because if you don't get this, then none of this makes sense. This letter is written to the church in Ephesus, which was dealing with massive issues of disunity between the Jews and the Gentiles, because the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other passionately. The Jews were those who had grown up with all the Jewish uh, rites and rituals and things, and they'd grown to be quite legalistic and quite arrogant in that way. The Gentiles were all the non-Jews who grew up in incredibly demonic, you could say, of, of, of dealing with horrific levels of uh, idolatry and witchcraft and sorcery, as well as being involved heavily in crazy levels of sexual perversions that were involved with all those rituals. And so two radically groups of different groups of people. In fact, the Jews used to wake up in the morning and pray every morning if they were good Jewish men, saying, thank you, God, for making me a Jew and not a Gentile, a dog, or a slave. I mean, that's how they viewed the Gentiles. They saw their perversions of, of, of witchcraft and sorcery, as well as all the sexual stuff. They said, they are disgusting. We can't be near them. They are unclean. They eat unclean foods. They do all these unclean things. And regardless of whether they've accepted Christ, they're still unclean. And then the Jews looked at the Gentile, or the Gentiles looked at the Jews, and they said they are arrogant, legalist, distant. We want nothing to do with them, or their stupid food laws, or all their rituals. We want nothing to do with any of that garbage that they keep trying to force upon us. And these two groups just hated each other. And remember, the Gentile, the Jews' views of the Gentiles wasn't unfounded. It's not that they. They, they were wrong to think the Gentiles have been unclean. There's a reason why Paul is constantly speaking in all the, all the letters to the apostles or to the Gentiles of all the sexual sin and the crazy garbage that they're involved with in that time. Because they were just recently coming to Christ out of this place of incredible brokenness. And that means they were still walking in some of those things. Much of the church was filled with people who only weeks or just a few years ago or months ago were involved in ritual prostitution and, and temple prostitution and sorcery and magic and all this just terrible, terrible stuff. And it's still part of their lives for many of them. And what does Paul tell the Jews and the Gentiles? Become, oh, no, thank you. Become one body is what he says. Become one body. Paul is adamant. They're not just both supposed to follow Jesus on their own, but as one body. They're called to fellowship as one body. Not even to form little, be part of one building or one church and then go off into their own groups. No, they are to be one body, not separated. And how is this possible that you could bring people who hate each other, violently hate each other, and bring them together as one body? How are they supposed to create this kind of unity? And the answer is, as Paul tells them, they don't create it. Paul never tells them to create unity. In verse 3, what does Paul tell them? Maintain the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. Maintain, not create. Another translation of that word maintain is to guard it, to keep it. So he's very clear this isn't something created by them putting in their best efforts to just get along. It's not something they can do. It's not their unity. It's the unity of the Spirit that already exists that they are called to maintain. So what is Paul talking about here in 
Just over a month ago, we would have gone through Ephesians chapter 2. And to make sense of this, you really got to go back and read the whole thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. But I want to zero in on just one part. Because in that section, back in chapter 2, Paul states that Jesus brought the two sides who were far apart, and he brought them together as one through his death on the cross. He broke down the dividing walls of hostility, and he says he made the two one. So Ephesians 2.16 says it this way. Together as one body, here he says that they are now one body, Christ, Jesus reconciled both groups, Jew and Gentile, to God by means of his death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, he says, breaks the hostility that divided them and brings them together. And he says our hostility towards each other was put to death on the cross with Jesus. So Paul says Jesus put to death the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But what may be a little strange is if you were now to ask a Gentile or a Jew who's reading this letter, would they be thinking that there is no longer any hostility left between the Jews and the Gentiles? Obviously not, or Paul wouldn't be writing this letter. So they're still experiencing it, which means that Paul is speaking of a reality that began with Christ, that was accomplished in Christ, but is not yet fully realized in that way. So Paul is adamant that something truly miraculous occurred in Christ. These two bodies that hated each other are now made one body. These two sides are adopted and become one family, one temple, and Jesus, by his Spirit, holds this together. In Christ's death, he has brought peace to hostility. Jesus is this peace, and his Spirit holds them together. So to recap, where does the unity come from? It comes from Jesus, through his Holy Spirit. Where does the peace come from? It comes from Jesus through his Holy Spirit. It's not a unity of man. It's not just based upon our own effort or our own strength. He's not asking the Gentiles try to have sympathy for the Jews. He's saying this is the the work of Christ and the unity of his Spirit that we are to maintain. We are to continue to maintain the work that Christ has already won on the cross. And so chapter 4, verse 3 again, he says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And now you see why Paul's writing it this way, that to walk worthy of our calling, we must fight to maintain, not create, to maintain what is already created by Christ, that Jesus made the two one. To be zealous, to guard this unity of the Spirit, not just broadly unity, but the unity the Holy Spirit brings because our hope is in Him and we are now all together as one body. And now we're called to guard this. In fact, it's cool. Paul here uses a word for unity in this passage that's only used twice in Scripture. Once here, where he refers to the unity of the Spirit. And then once again, he speaks of it just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says this. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the only two places this word for unity are used, and he's doing it for a reason. He says in verse 3 that unity was established in Christ, that Christ did it, but now in verse 13 he's saying it's something we must work towards and that we must attain at some point. So this is that crazy idea of the now but not yet kingdom of God, that we've received the unity at the cross, but we do not yet have it in full. And now our responsibility is to maintain this unity and to keep walking out in this way of love until we attain it in the way that God intended for. So Paul says that Christ established this unity on the cross. We must maintain it as we work towards it. And so Christians are to walk worthy of this calling to which they are called. With patience, humility, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, and bearing with one another in love. They are to be zealously devoted to seeing the unity and peace that Christ brought to his kingdom maintained and attained. Right? That's our calling, Christians. 
is for this. This is central to our calling as Christians. And this is of utmost importance to Paul. As he finishes describing all that Christ has done for us in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, this is where he states as the first thing that believers must focus upon. Experiencing, living out, maintaining this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Breaking down the hostility between those who can't be in the same room together. Between the legalists, those steeped in tradition, and those with deep sexual perversions beyond anything they could understand. Or we would even imagine today. Now, we're going to get to the application of this in a couple minutes, but I want to hit the next couple verses here. And if you're tired a little bit of already our constant emphasis on loving one another and unity, I want to tell you, get ready, because Paul is just starting to warm up in this letter. He's just getting started. So next, Paul says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Hope you're picking up the idea. One. Paul is doubling down on this idea for the Gentiles and the Jews who may be prone to emphasize their differences, what's wrong with one another. Paul is saying this is truth. This is what we have in common. This is what we all hold to. No matter what foods you eat, no matter what things you celebrate, no matter what holidays you go to, no matter what festivals you honor, or every theological argument that you have that divides you, this is what matters. One hope, one spirit, one God, one Father, one Jesus, one Lord, one baptism. This is what matters. This is what we have in common. And he gives seven of them for a reason, because it's a divine number. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not saying these are the only things that matter. But Paul is saying, this is what unites us. This is what holds us together. There is one body, he starts, and one spirit. There are not two different bodies. We don't get to separate across from one another. There is one body that holds all of these incredibly complex and diverse views and people together who literally hate each other. He says, you are one body. Jews, Gentiles, Romans, and those from Jerusalem, and those from all over Africa. You are one body. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. He says, some of us here are Jews, some are Gentiles. And not just ethnic, he says, some are slaves and some are free. Other places, some are men, some are women. But we have all been baptized into one body, by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. In that passage, Paul goes on to say, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, I'll do this on my own. He says we need each other. In fact, in verse 25 of that chapter, he says that the body must care for one another, even for the weaker parts, the parts they don't like or the parts they don't want. He says we can't pull apart one part and say, ah, I don't want that part, because they do things differently or they think things differently than I do. He says the Jews don't get to go form their own church down the street and say, well, this I'm going to get together people who think like me, who worship like me, who want to do the things the way that I want to do them. Somehow we've missed this part in the body of Christ. Because we think it's all about our preferences. And I only want to be around people who think like me, worship like me, act like me, look like me, dress like me. It's just so against Scripture. He says, you don't have that option. We are one body, he says. I mean, do you think that the, the, the Gentiles who just walked away from worshiping Artemis and casting curses on one another, having amulets and all this magic, do you think they had perfect theology in all areas coming into the church? Absolutely not. They were a mess. 
And the Jews didn't have perfect theology about who Jesus is because they've been steeped in a different understanding of that for years, and they're trying to rediscover. But they are told to love the hell out of each other, of all the brokenness and all the pain. They are bound to each other in love, is what he says. Not based upon perfect doctrine. Outside of the essentials, the ones that he gives there, they are all over the map theologically and worldview-wise, but they can love because of what Christ has done. So in verse 4, he says, stop fighting over what divides you. Here's what unites us, he says. One body, one spirit. And he goes on, one hope. He speaks of this so many times. We have the same hope, the same inheritance in Christ. We are of the same family. One Lord. This is referring to Jesus, who is the Lord that we follow. There's one faith, hammering again. There's only one way to Jesus, to the Father, and it's through Jesus. There is only one faith, one Lord. Jesus is the only way. One baptism, he says next. And somehow we use this for division of how many times can you be baptized? You're baptized later. You've got to baptize this way. God, we use this as division. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about methods of baptism here. He's saying there's only one way that we are baptized, and that is in Christ. Christ is the uniter, and somehow, just like what church does, we take this and we make it about division. In fact, the whole Baptist movement started over division of this stuff. This is not about how we are baptized and the methods. It's there is one baptism in Jesus. We die to the old way, and we are born again in the new. That is what he's saying. That's what unites us, and somehow we find ways to make that what divides us. One God and one Father who's over all, Lord of all, and through all. Paul is screaming out, we are one. We are one and we are united. Why do we keep seeking to divide the body? Christ came to unite us. Do not tear apart what he came to unite. You can hear Paul screaming here, we are one in Christ. Why can't we emphasize what we have in common? The things that we share, our shared values, our identity in Christ, our our inheritance in Him, our home in Christ. Instead, we're known for doing the opposite, just hammering down on all the things that are differences. And and oftentimes we think they're theologically, but math or theological, but most of the time they're just cultural differences that we elevate to the realm of doctrine. And Paul hammers instead that we need to maintain the unity of Christ to come back to all that we have in common. And notice the the structure there. It's the Spirit, Jesus, the Father. What is that? It's the Trinity. He comes back to the most historic truth of unity. There is Trinitarian unity. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father. All of this is rooted in Trinitarian unity. We are united in God and Christ. If Jews and Gentiles can be together as one body, we should be able to be together as one body amongst different political and theological spectrums. We can have people coming from charismatic backgrounds and those who are just terrified of the word charismatic, and then those who don't even know what the word means. We should all be able to to follow the Lord together because our unity is not based upon all agreeing the same stuff because it's not unity of uniformity, but it's unity of the Spirit based upon what Christ has done. We are commanded as His followers to zealously pursue and maintain this unity. But again, it seems we spend more effort trying to, than maintaining the unity of sacrificing it whenever something doesn't go our way or someone disagrees with us. We're more, we're more inclined to fight for our own perspective, our own view, than fighting for the very things we are called to fight for as the body of Christ, to walk in Trinitarian unity. Why do we put so much energy in trying to divide? 
so little in trying to unite as Christ has called us. Dr. Klein Snodgrass, I often quote him because his Ephesians commentary, I think is the best one out there, but um, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says that Christians value differences more than unity or people. I think that's often true. We are more fearful of some ecumenical world structure than of fragmenting the body of Christ. Just this week, I was listening to a few sermons on this as I often do whatever topic, and I couldn't believe how many of the sermons on this subject spent the whole time of the sermon, almost none of it on unity, but the whole time trying to protect the church from some ecumenical world movement of something, and completely missing out on the entire passage out of fear that, oh no, we might actually start working together with people who believe different things. And that was the focus. They're so scared of what would happen if we actually sit with people who believe things differently than us, they completely miss the passage of what Paul is talking about. Why can't we have the same amount of passion of actually obeying Jesus in this area instead of seeking ways to divide of why we're different or better? In fact, in this commentary, I'm going to quote a couple more things from it. Dr. Klein Snodgrass. Now, remember, he is a very Baptist, very Orthodox scholar. I want to state that to begin with. Very Baptist, in fact. And he says, the emphasis in this foundation for unity should determine the interest and shape of our theology. Notice what he's saying there, basically repeating Paul. He means that the incredible repetition of the value of unity that Paul speaks of and Jesus speaks of, he says that unity and the calling for unity must shape our theology, not the other way around. It must take center stage because it does for Paul, it does for the apostles, and it does for Jesus. And somehow we've left that out in most of our theological discussions today. And he goes on, he says, we should focus on the gospel and on what God has accomplished in Christ and place less stock in our ability to define the truth, for we all see through a glass dimly, as 1 Corinthians says. Humility is required first in doing theology. So he says we must focus on the things Paul is hammering on. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one God who is over all and in all. That must be our focus of what Jesus has done on the cross and have humility when it comes to... Now, again, remember, this is a doctor, a professor, a head of New Testament studies, whose job, he is an expert in doctrine, and he is saying we must have humility when we comes to theology, and we must make sure that this shapes our theology, not the other way around. Because even an expert says, I can't perfectly define doctrine. Because he acknowledges, as, Jesus, as Paul says... We see now through a glass dimly. He goes on, for too long we have allowed lower order items to cause division. Amen. For too long. We've allowed the non-essentials to define the essentials. You know, I was reading a story about a church in Dallas, true story, that made the news because they had this massive divide, happens all the time, but this one particularly made the news because one half the church followed one elder, the other half followed another elder, and they, they tried to take it to the court, so it became public of who keeps the building and what's going on as they're splitting, and the court sent it back to the denomination, saying it has nothing to do with us. Finally, they said, okay, this side gets to keep the building, and the other side then moved down the street to form their own church. Well, the news media picked up on it because they said they wanted to find out where did this division begin? And as they began to look at what caused this massive split of this old church that made it to the media, that went to courts and everything else, as they looked back to find where the whole division began, it began with an elder at a church meal who was given a smaller piece of ham than the guy next to him, and his ego was bruised. Literally, they were fighting over a piece of ham. I mean, that's insane. Absolutely insane. I mean, can you see how insane that is, especially in light of what we just read of Paul saying, we must fight, be zealous to maintain unity, and somehow they're literally fighting over a piece of ham and a bruised ego of an elder and dividing the church and make a mockery of Christ to the world. 
and we can laugh at that. But how many of our divisions in the church are just as ridiculous, if not more? So much of the stuff we divide over today, if we were to put it on a scale, like that scale I had last week, or like a real, actually a good one, you know, if we were to put the weight of our divisions and compared to the weight of the unity of the body of Christ, where would the weight of our divisions and our problems sit in weight of the glory and the manifest glory of Christ and the unity of the body? I mean, it is insane how those things would be out of place. It's just as ridiculous fighting over a piece of ham. And we saw this, to be honest, we saw this played out on a massive scale the last few years. Just right in our midst. We can never laugh about this stuff again because we have to be honest. It wasn't division over ham, but something even more ridiculous than ham. Christians fighting and dividing, Christians turning brothers and sisters, starting to hate each other, churches closing down, not over ham, but what did we divide over? A piece of cloth. I mean, come on! Future generations of churches are going to have a field day with this one as they read through this passage. We are going to get mocked to no end by future generations as they read stories, not about Ham, but can you believe that church of 2021 that divided over a piece of cloth? If you were to use the scales again, what does the weight of our differences have in relation to the glory of God and redeeming His people? Snodgrass goes on to say it this way, we cherish eschatological timetables and the nuances of systems and lose the focus on God's redeeming His people. He's saying we fight over end times prophecy and nuances of theology and lose sight of God's plan of redeeming His people. He's saying, like Paul, why can't we fight for that? It's not that doctrine doesn't matter, it matters deeply. And he finishes the quote by saying this, theological clarity and precision are necessary, but when our explanations become the cause of division, we have not rightly understood our salvation. Do we get that? Yes, let's seek to understand theology and doctrine. Yes, truth matters. We have to understand the essentials. We have to have unity in the essentials of who Christ is. But when our explanations of our preferences and our opinions create division, we have completely misunderstood our salvation and God's plan of redeeming His people. We must share Jesus' passion for the unity of His body. We're called to walk worthy of that calling. I've quoted it many times, but John 17, chapter 17, or chapter 17, verse 21 to 24, He says this, Jesus is praying for us and all future Christians, and He says, I pray that they will all be one. That's us. Just as you and I are one, he says to the Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they, that's us, Jew, Gentile, conservative, whatever, every other thing that's on the list, every possible understanding, that, 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 sorry, that we may be one, or they may be one as we are one, he says. I am in them, you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. May we experience the same unity the Trinity experiences. Jew, Gentile, legalist, and hedonist. That the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This is Jesus saying this. We're to experience that kind of unity as the Trinity experiences. Between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not just between friends, but among those who naturally hate each other. With wildly different worldviews. That's the example Jesus gives us of unity. That's what we're supposed to maintain. That is the calling to which we are called, church. So what do we do? Do we just pray about it? Or do we pursue it and actually obey? 
Back to Ephesians 4, 2 again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how we're supposed to deal with it. Gentleness, humility, patience, and long-suffering. Is that how we approach our divisions today? Is that how we approach one another when we feel attacked, or we feel gossiped about, or we feel that our opinion has been stomped on in some way? Is that how we approach differences in theology and doctrine of the non-essentials? Is this how we approach people who sin differently than we do? With gentleness and humility and patience? Or do we fight for our own rights? Fight for our perspective? Fight for why my sin isn't as bad as their sin and why my view is better than their view. I mean, read Colossians 3, 12 through 15 with me again. This is Paul, basically the parallel passage in Colossians, and he puts it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, listen to this, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And if one has a complaint against another... Destroy them. No, that's not what it says. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put on love which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Be compassionate, walk in kindness and humility and gentleness. Forgive when there's complaints or gossip. And above all, put on love, not pride. Put on love, because love binds everything together. Notice in our Ephesians passage, he said, and the bond of peace. He's describing what that is right here. It's actually love and the peace of Christ. So as we finish this morning, do we share Paul and Jesus' passion for unity as a body? Do we place their calling to maintain the unity on the same level that they do? Or is it way, way down below for, as it is for most of Christianity? Do we actually see this as central to the calling to which we are called, what it means to live and love like Jesus, is to maintain this unity and pursue it? Will we step out of our echo chambers of Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Instagram and, and, and Fox News and CNN and get our heads out of the vitriol that just keeps going into our heads? You know, I want to start a brief story about this. I remember when my father visited us in South Africa a few years back, right before we made the decision to move to America. He was about to retire and he was going to spend six months of the year in South Africa and six months of the year with us back here in America. And I remember when he came to me, I, I noticed when he was there that something had happened to him in the last few years, and it's like he lost his joy and his gentleness, and he just got so stuck in the social media cycle back then that it's just like he was just so quick to be, to be angry and so quick to criticize and so quick to judge. He was always saying, can you believe this and can you believe that? And I'm like, what happened to you, Dad? And he says, I want to come here and minister. And I had to say one of the hardest things I've ever said to my father. I said, I would love for you to come and minister to us or to minister here with us, but right now you can't. You need to detox you need to get away from everything that you're involved in because you are not loving and kind and gentle the way you need to be. And I said to him, and I'll never forget saying, I need you to be able to naturally assume the best in others. I need you to be excited to partner with Jesus in loving those who see the world radically different than yourself. If you can't do that, you're kind of useless to me here doing ministry. No, I give him so much credit, though he didn't move down because we moved back. He went home and took it seriously. He went into the Word and he changed radically. And he got his gentleness and his joy back. And there's many Christians here. Some of... Okay, time to turn that thing off. 
There are many Christians here. Some of you may be here who find yourself in the same position. And if you're honest, you find yourself drinking from a well or a hose of toxic sludge of divisiveness, whether it be sources that are conservative or liberal, independent, or maybe it's books or teachings on theology or ideas that are, where everything emphasizes the other side and the wrong side. And you need to be honest and just ask yourself, what fruit is this producing in your heart? Are you allowing the talking points and the vitriol and all this stuff to shape your heart and the way you view others in the world? And here's the kicker. And take this question seriously. Do you find your heart increasingly hardened towards those who see the world differently than you? Or do you find your heart increasingly hardened towards those who sin differently than you? Let me ask that again. Do you find your heart hardened towards those who see the world differently than you or those who sin differently than you? I'm telling you, as Christians, we don't get that choice. It's not an option for us. As followers of Jesus, it calls, we are called to the calling of gentleness, humility, compassion, kindness, and love. And yes, we're going to talk about speaking truth, and that's even next week, speaking the truth in love. Well, what about that? We'll get there, and to quote Inigo Montoya, I don't think that phrase means what you think it means. Right? It doesn't give you just carte blanche to be a jerk to anyone. That's not what it's saying. There's not truth people and love people. It's not okay for us to not obey this. We must have the same priority as Jesus and make every effort to love one another and maintain unity of Christ. And unity is not saying that whenever else sees everything the same way as me, then we'll have unity. I mean, do you realize when we enter into eternity, there's no Baptists, there's no Reformed, there's, there's no Episcopalians, there's no Lutherans, there's no conservatives, there's no Democrats, there's no Republicans. We are one body. And Jesus, when he's asked how to pray, he says, I pray this way, he says. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to be moving towards. And so much of this world right now is missing out on eternity with Christ. Why? Because Christians choose division over obeying Christ. And that should terrify us. That the way in which we choose division actually pushes people away from the kingdom of Christ. So let us reprioritize our values today. We're in those places, and this isn't right up there at the top. It's time to reprioritize. To ensure our priorities line up with that of Jesus and Paul. So as we finish this morning, I want us just to go before the Lord and pray. And ask the Lord to actually help us reprioritize, to see things His way, to set aside our divisions and our demand to be right and for them to be wrong. And say, Jesus, I want your perspective. Yes, I value truth. We're not wishy-washy. We're not universalists. Yes, truth matters. But you know one of the greatest truths is what Paul speaks of right here and what Jesus speaks of, and it's our calling to walk in love towards one another. And we can't put that as second rate behind everything else. So that's you right now. Just pray to the Lord and say, Jesus, I know I've been living and giving into temptations of standing in judgment of others, of hardening my heart and, and drinking from the hose of toxicity and sludge and judgment and, 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 and anger and, and outrage. And Jesus, I want to be compassionate. I want to be gentle. I want to be kind, Lord, in the ways that you speak of Scripture, not in some type of just moral irrelevancy, but in the way empowered by your Spirit to bring unity and to maintain unity in your body, Lord. Pray, Lord, and repent. Some of us need to repent this morning. 
And then maybe we need to detox and maybe take a couple weeks away from social media or maybe, even better, a couple decades and just get that garbage out of our head. And for maybe others who don't identify with that, but right now, go to the Lord and say, Father, am I placing unity of the body in the same way that you do? Do I see it as central to the message of the gospel? Central to the world coming to know you is my role in loving others and walking in gentleness and humility, patience and long-suffering. Am I willing to be wrong? I'm willing to be told I'm wrong and not defend and not fight. And maybe right now there's even people in this room that you're walking a judgment towards. Worldviews or because of sin or whatever else it is. Say, Jesus, I don't want to live in a place of judgment upon others. I want to live pursuing your truth and doing everything I can to love one another. So Jesus, as we finish this morning, we just lift this before you. And I just pray right now, Lord, may you come and may you speak to our hearts. Jesus, may you help us, Father, to reimagine what it looks like to, to be your body. It doesn't have to be the way it is. What is is not what is supposed to be. And therefore, we can live with your vision for your kingdom, not the reality we see around us. Jesus, empower us to move towards one another. And just to do that doesn't mean we accept all their sin and all their brokenness. No, but we love the hell out of them, Jesus. Oh, Father, may we reprioritize and read your words as truth. Help us to live out your words, Lord Jesus. Your heart for the body. And may we be one. Amen.